We have a reading from Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to her, Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have, have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Berloi Roy, I'm sorry. <laughs> it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Those Old Testament names always get you. I'd like to go ahead and uh, dismiss the uh, children for Children's Church uh, this morning and uh, go with your uh, lovely and talented, beautiful, great teacher. Not, not biased. <laughs> and, uh, and then let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to lift up our voices and praise you, to praise your name. Uh, thank you for that opportunity. We pray for um, Berean Church in Palmdale where uh, Tim is preaching this morning and be with Tim and Lisa and the congregation there that, uh, that they would be uh, encouraged and edified by uh, Tim's message and, uh, and they would also worship and glorify you. Be with us this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first a little uh, prefacing. Uh, this is... Um, a uh, topical sermon. <laughs> um, 
as Tim has said, you know, you preach one topical sermon a year and repent for the rest of the year of it. Um, I've also had friends say that good topical is expository, so there. <laughs> but being a topical sermon, that means we're going to bounce around a little bit. We're going to be going through the scripture. So I encourage you to have your Bibles ready, either um, print version or online. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some out uh, in the lobby on the table. Uh, but I encourage you to follow along uh, as we go. Uh, I, I really love the, the music this morning. John, I love what you had to say in that song. Uh, and and it, it kind of set up the perfect preface that, um, you know, we're, we're talking about the God who sees me, the God who knows my name. And then we have this beautiful part where God introduces himself. And the first thing God brings to us is this is who I am I just it was like perfect <laughs> it's almost like there's somebody bigger than us putting this all together I grew up in the San Fernando Valley a couple valleys down if you're not familiar with it uh, part of uh, city of Los Angeles and a lot of famous people live in the San Fernando Valley uh, have or had uh, Tim Burton director and producer, Don Drysdale, great pitcher for the Dodgers, Bob Hope, uh, Tim Curry, uh, Brett Saberhagen, uh, Kurt Cameron, um, Adam Schiff, uh, and of course the famous Corey Feldman, all live or have lived in the San Fernando Valley. I've never met any of them. Never met a single one of them, and none of them know my name. Uh, my, uh, my parents have met famous people living in the San Fernando Valley. Um, uh, I have friends who, who've known famous people in the Valley, and I'm kind of this unique unicorn in that I've never met anybody famous. Just hasn't happened. None of them know who I am. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote a famous and fantastic book. If you haven't read it, go home right now and read it and come back. We'll wait. Uh, but a famous book called Knowing God. And it's important to know him. It's important to know his name, to know that he is I am, the great I am. But I have to say, it's important that God knows you. That God knows you. So when we looked, uh, um, when Ebony read uh, Genesis 16, Hagar was literally a nobody. She was below nobody. She was an Egyptian slave of a Chaldean woman. Um, that you didn't even register in the census. You were just grouped as servants, slaves. Um, so uh, uh, Sari uh, ultimately becomes Sarah. Her husband Abram became Abraham. And they became the first Hebrews. They were the first of God's chosen people. But Hagar was a nobody. When Sarah couldn't conceive yet, it's coming, read ahead, um, even though God promised to make a great nation of Abraham, Sarah took matters into her own hands and handed Hagar over to her husband uh, so he might have an heir. Uh, Hagar would not have had any voice in this. It was not her decision. 
Uh, she just uh, did what she was told. But once Hagar became pregnant, she became contemptuous of Sarai. She looked down on her because Hagar was the one who had conceived and felt she had a, a, a superior position uh, in the household. Sarai then resented her because of that. You know, she's going, you're, you're my servant, yet you're treating me like, like this. Um, so this all came about, I heard another sermon and on this passage, but they were focused on the story of Abraham and spent a tremendous amount of time talking about Abraham and Sarai and, and their little uh, argument here where she blames him for giving, she giving her servant to her husband. But, uh, but he came to this end about, you know, and God saw Hagar, and I almost jumped up and said, you're missing a cool point. So that, that's kind of where the sermon came from. So in the scripture, uh, you know, Sari is, is dealing harshly with Hagar. So she fled. She ran away. She is literally a runaway slave. And she finds herself at a spring, and there the angel of the Lord meets her. Um, uh, some think that this may be the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, I, I kind of fall in that camp. Uh, it's, it's kind of, a, kind of a big deal. This is the first time the term the angel of the Lord is used in scripture. So this is the first time we hear the term the angel of the Lord. But she talks about meeting God there. Um, it's fascinating study to look where this name shows up and who it could mean, but we're not going there today. Remind me later, I'll do another sermon on it later. But the idea that this is the angel of the Lord meets her, she's at this desperate moment, she's at this spring, she's pregnant, and the angel of the Lord shows up. In this running away from a harsh mistress, she's alone, she's helpless, and she meets God. Think about how amazing that is. God asks her where she's going and where did she come from? Doesn't God know? Doesn't God know where she came from and where she's going? Or is God giving Hagar a chance to confess the truth? Is, Hagar giving, is God giving Hagar that opportunity to say it herself for herself, to realize what position she's in. Um, give them that chance to confess the truth. How often does God do this in scripture? How often do we see God approach somebody and ask that question? Where are you going? What are you doing? I know when my parents said that, I knew I was in trouble. My dad says, what are you doing? I know he knows. He just wants me to confess, which isn't going to make the punishment any less, but he feels better about it. So, but the angel of the Lord asks an important and insightful question. And Hagar seems to, in this case, have acted without thinking. She's kind of asking herself this question, where, where am I coming from and where am I going? She may not have thought this through, 
when you run away from something, you, you, you often don't logic it out. You just run away. And I think that's what happened here. But asking those questions, where have I come from and where am I going, can save us a lot of trouble. Save us a lot of pain when we stop and say, where am I going and where am I coming from? So Hagar thought she knew. She thought she knew. She had this in her mind. I come from the most terrible place ever. And I'm going nowhere. I'm going away. And that's all she's got on her mind. And then the angel of the Lord says, I got a plan. I've got an idea. How about this? And he presents it to her. So God knows her name. I mean, what does he say? What's the first thing out of his mouth? Hagar. <laughs> uh, he knows who she is. Hagar, servant of Sari. Don't you think he knows what's going on? Don't you think he knows what she's thinking? In verse 11, God says to name her son Ishmael. The name Ishmael means God hears. God hears her plea. And in verse 13, Hagar says, You are a God of seeing, or another way is, You are a God who sees me. Think how incredible that is. God sees you. If she changed her direction, there was an inherent promise. He said, go back. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. But he says, obey me and I will protect you. Obey me and there is a blessing on you. The bad news is God tells her to go back to Sarah and submit. Uh, and this is the woman that's been treating her harshly. The good news is she's told she'll live. You're going to live through this because you're going to have a child. You're going to bear a son, and that son's going to grow up into a man, and that man will be the father of a great multitude of people. There's a future. Hagar and her son have a future. And God has told her to have that promise, do what I say. For Hagar, the amazing thing is God sees her. God sees her and calls her by her name. She wasn't a nobody. She was somebody who God knew. If you go to Exodus chapter 33, um, and look at uh, verse 17, um, the, this is the part that falls almost perfectly in line with uh, uh, what John was saying. Exodus 33, verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know your name. God introduces himself as the great I am, but then he goes, tells Moses, you found favor in myself, and I know your name. I know who you are. In, in chapter 33 of Exodus, God says that he's not going to go with the people. He's no longer going to go in front of his people. He's going to send an angel 
to take care of that, uh, and the angel's going to go with them. Because God says if he goes with them, they were such sinners that he would destroy them in a minute. Uh, and Moses says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, if you don't come with your people, just destroy us right now. If you're not coming with us, just wipe us all out, myself included. Moses is kind of going all in. This is, this is how you negotiate. Go all in. <laughs> Either do what I say or destroy us all. Bold move. Worked out, so it's okay. Um, uh, in Exodus, God said he knows, his, knows Moses' name. In verse 11, uh, a little few verses before that, it says, uh, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. God speaks to Moses like a man speaks to his friend. Think about that. God and Moses, and God's just standing there talking. Moses had interceded on behalf of the people of Israel for the presence of God to continue with them. And Moses argued with God. Because sometimes that's what friends do. He felt comfortable enough with God to argue with God on what God was going to do. God says, I'm going to do this. And God says, and Moses goes, no, you're not. You're going to do this the other way or just wipe us out. But God knows Moses' name, and Moses had found favor in God's sight. The interesting thing is, you keep going, the next thing that happens is Moses asked to see the glory of God. Moses is really pushing his hand here. <laughs> he says, go with us or destroy us. And God says, fine, I'll go with you. He goes, okay, now show me your glory. Show me your glory. And it's not, this isn't, Moses isn't doing this for the experience. This isn't something, you know, that he can, you know, brag about. I saw the glory of God. He's doing this for the people of Israel to say, this is how committed God is to his people, that he would show, reveal his glory. And God permits it. Now, there's some precautions. There's a cleft in the rock. There's a hand going by. Uh, and then God calling himself as he goes by um, is, is, is amazing. But Moses negotiated with the Lord God for his presence can you with the people of Israel, and then he asked to see God's glory. Bold move. But Moses had a personal relationship with God. He talked with God as with a friend. And when God knows your name, he knows you. And it's like no other relationship you have ever had. Nothing else is like being able to talk to God like a friend and God talking to you. So in Genesis 32, uh, in uh, Genesis 32, 25 through 29, we see Jacob wrestling with a man all night. So Genesis 32, starting in 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. 
and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Look how important a name is in there. Interesting, God does not give his name to, to Jacob, even when Jacob asked. But he says, I'm giving you a new name because of what just happened. Well, what happened his entire life up to that point. Jacob had been Jacob since he was born. Um, I think all of us, We've had this first name. I've been called Dan my entire life. So um, he's been Jacob since he was born. But here God tells him he's got a new name. God says, you're no longer Jacob. You're Israel. What does Israel mean? Strives with God. Or in some ways, strives against God. Uh, that Israel, the man, and Israel, the people, strive with God wrestles with God, literally. The thing is, if you go further on um, in the book of Genesis, in the story of Jacob, Jacob always refers to himself as Jacob when he's contending with God, when he's wrestling with God, but he calls himself Israel when he's walking with God. When he knows he's being disobedient, he calls himself Jacob. But when he is walking with God, in God's will, he calls himself Israel. And the great thing is, as he gets older, he calls himself Israel more often as he grows in his relationship. But he, Jacob understood his new name. And he understood who had given it to him and why. God saw Jacob. And God knew Jacob's name. And he said, I'm going to give you a more accurate name. And you're going to live by that name. You're going to grow into it, but you're going to live with that name. Um, and Isaiah 43, 1, you can just listen to this one. Now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The idea that this is the, this is the nation of Israel, not Israel the man, by the time we get to Isaiah 43. Um, really, like any nation, Israel became a people because God created them as a people. I mean, that, that's kind of an obvious statement, but, but a group of, becomes a people, a nation, a group, because God did it. God does that. Uh, so he created them as a people, and God formed Israel from the seed of one man the friend of God, Abraham. The Abram that we just talked about in Genesis. Here he calls the nation both Jacob and Israel. Those two names, the name of, of the, the one that is, is contentious with God and wrestling with God and 
and working so hard and then the Israel that is resting in God and following God and faithful to God, God calls the nation both those names because they are that people. Um, the nation of Israel was wicked. The nation of Israel was disobedient. They should be fearful of God and his wrath, and they deserved all and any punishment that God could give them. In the previous chapter, God calls them blind and deaf. So he has this, this relationship, but God tells them not to fear because he has redeemed them. And this is the next building of that step of God seeing you and God knowing your name. He says, don't be afraid because I have redeemed you. He's paid the price for their sin through Jesus Christ, his son, who dies on the cross. That's where our redemption happens. If someone walks down the sidewalk and puts a quarter in a parking meter by your car that, that's run out, you're redeemed from the sin of not paying to park. But there's no relationship. There's no favor given to you from them. They don't invite you home for dinner or to live with them for the rest of your life. It's just a quarter. But it's a redemption, redeeming you of your sin, paying the debt of your sin. But that person who put the quarter in doesn't know your name. God here says that beyond being redeemed, they are called his. He says, I've paid your debt, but more than that, I've called you my own. And he's the one who gave them that name. Remember, he gave the name Israel. He says, I'm calling you by name, and it's a name I gave you. And they're not his slaves. They're not his property. They're his cherished ones. They're the ones he loves the one he calls. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives Simon Barjona a new name. You might know him as Peter. Peter, uh, the name is similar uh, to the word for a, a rock, um, a, a large, substantial rock. In Matthew 16, 17, and Jesus answered him um, after he had he had declared that um, uh, Jesus is God. He's blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So God gives Peter a new name, but there's a promise in that name. God makes a promise to Peter. that I will build my church upon you and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and when you put it all together, the idea is there's this large chunk of granite, oh, say the size of Half Dome. And the gates of hell are there with an ice pick going chip, 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 chip. They're not gonna prevail. They're not gonna take this down. They're not gonna take down the church that's built on this rock. Um, 
Though perhaps unlikely, Peter was a rock. He would become a rock. God would transform his naturally extreme character into something solid and reliable and unmovable. He says, this is the rock, and that's the name I'm giving you. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, to him the gatekeeper opens, one of his, his parables, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And we love this idea of these cute little lambs scampering to the shepherd as he calls their names. Um, the sheep know the shepherd's voice and the name he calls them. The sheep knows whose flock they are. He's being called by name. When we hear our name, we react. Don't we, A.J. Pinkerton? <laughs> We react when someone says our name. It used to be you could wander around inside the airports. You could, you could go right up to the gate and, and wait for, for uh, your, your passenger, your friends, family getting off the airplane. You could stand right at the gate and meet them right there. Um, you'd, you'd meet them and then you'd go down to baggage claim together. So I was in the Air Force and I was traveling in uniform. Part of our uniform is a name tag. A little name tag with your name. I still have it someplace around the house. Um, so I'm walking through LAX when a voice calls out behind me, Stromberg. I stop and turn around. Somebody called my name. I turned around. It was one of those Hare Krishna guys. He had waited till I had gone by, took note of my name tag, and then waited till I was passed and then called out my name because he knew people would stop and turn around when they hear their name. I didn't buy the flower offering. But, um, but the point was is that I heard my name and I reacted. I heard my name and I paid attention. And when God calls his sheep, when the shepherd calls his sheep by name, they react. And they come to the shepherd. But more than just reacting to hearing our name, we recognize the voice of the shepherd. So this guy calls my name, and I turn around because it is my name. But in the same airport, when it was all crowded and I got off the airplane, my dad is standing on the other side of the terminal and yells, Dan. And not only is it my name, but I know that voice. I know who that is, and I go to that, to that person. When we hear the voice of a loved one, our heart is glad. We're comforted by the fact God knows us. God sees us. God sees that sheep and goes, I know that one, and I've given that one a name. Uh, in John 10, 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So knowing God and God knowing you. That's a relationship. There's a relationship there. 
And that's a wonderful gift. The wonderful gift that we can have a relationship with our God. We can have peace and surety knowing our Savior is the Good Shepherd. And a Good Shepherd is one who cares for his sheep and gives them what is best, even when they don't know what that is. In Psalm 139, verses 1 through 3, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. When God knows you, he knows everything about you. He knows what you need and what you don't. All of our kids went through a phase where they wouldn't go to sleep at bedtime. It's bedtime, they'd go to bed, they just wouldn't go to sleep. Sometime for hours. Standing in the crib, crying. They're too tired to stay awake, but they won't go to sleep. They wanted to stay up. They wanted to play. They wanted to watch TV. They wanted to be with their parents, be entertained, anything. But as parents, we knew what they needed was rest. So we would work to give them the rest they need even though they thought they didn't want it. Sometimes that's what our good shepherd does. He takes us, he, he, he pushes us away from the bad water to the good water, from the bad pasture to the good pasture. We're going, but there's, but there's water and grass right here. And he says, but the water and grass over here is better and actually good for you. And he knows our ways. He knows us. And he knows what is best for us. In a relationship where God knows you and knows your name, we can't hide from him when we sin. That's the other side of that. God knows you. God knows when you sin. God's there when you sin. But the greatness is we are redeemed and we're saved by God's grace and we're saved by God's mercy. We don't have to be afraid of the good shepherd. We don't have to be afraid that we're going to, like Hagar, this fear of not being able to survive the environment that we're in, the people that we're around. Uh, this last little bit, uh, Revelation 20, verse 15. Uh, I'd, I'd like you to take a look at that. We're going we're to look at a few verses in Revelation. Uh, it, it has a lot to do with the importance of God knowing our name. And if anybody, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a frightening verse. That's really scary. That's condemning. For those whose names aren't written in the book of life, this is horrible. It's awful. But for us, 
It's a comfort. It's an assurance. When that book is open and Jesus, our Lord God, reads from it, he will come across the name Daniel Stromberg and say, I know this one. He's mine. I know his name. I see him. And that's the great comfort. That's the awesomeness of God seeing you and knowing your name. Because that name is written here in the book of life. And Jesus opens it because he's the only one who can. And he's going to read your name. He's going to say, I know that person. And that one's mine. Page over, Revelation 21, 5 through 7. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What an amazing promise. Not only does God see you, he knows you, he knows your name, and then he says, now you're my son. You're my child. Jesus says, we're co-heirs with him. What an elevation to go from the lost that are going to be thrown into the lake of fire to being uh, called his son and he will be our God. Flip one more page, Revelation 22. We can't do, can't do our end time promise without doing Revelation 22. Um, no longer will there be anything accursed, starting in verse 3. No longer will anything be accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. Remember Moses? Remember, he asked to see God's glory, but God had to hide Moses from the full force of his glory or he would die? Remember God said he, he spoke to Moses as a friend? Look at what's going on here. We see God face to face. We see his face. That means my face sees his face. We are face to face with God. Something Moses couldn't look upon and live. God spoke to Moses as a friend. How does he speak to us? Throughout the New Testament, Jesus calls us brothers, sisters, co-heirs with him. Here, God says, he will be my son. Moses was a friend. You're his child. You're his family. The church is called the body of Christ. We're called the bride of Christ. Remember those bold things that Moses asked of God? Come with us. Show me your glory. When God knows your name, when God calls you his child, what are the possibilities? What can you ask for? Look what Moses asked for. He asked for big, bold things. 
Do we dare to even ask the big, bold things? Because we're his children. He knows our name. He sees us. He's going to consider that. He's going to offer us that. Moses had to be hidden from the face of God, otherwise he'd die. Once the Spirit's completed his work of sanctification, we can look upon his face with glory, with joy. Then we're sealed with God's name on our heads. Think of that. God's going to put his name on our foreheads. He sees us. He knows our name. And in that day, we will see God and have his name upon us. And that's what happens when God sees us. Let's close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to uh, just to prepare to spend time in this lesson, to look at this, to... Um, to just enjoy being uh, in your presence, uh, in your word, but that uh, we would understand and realize that you see us, you know our name, you call us your sons and daughters, and that we have a wonderful life ahead of us, but we can have a wonderful life now, living in you and asking, daring to ask for the big possibilities that will bring you glory and will bring you praise and will bring you honor. Give us the courage to be that child of yours. In Jesus' name.